0: So we're going to be looking at Stephen today, and I think we'll see that in in, in what happens um, today, that if he didn't believe that God's goodness, his grace, his kindness to him was enough, he certainly would not have done what we're going to see him do today. Now we're going to be looking at the story of Stephen over the three weeks um, here. Um, This week we're going to be looking at verses 8 through 15 of chapter 6, which deals with Stephen's arrest. We're then going to be looking at chapter seven. I'm sorry, yes, yeah, chapter seven, verses one through fifty-three, which will focus on the testimony that he gives before his accusers. And then, two weeks from now, actually, no, it's two weeks or before, Mother's Day is in there somewhere. Um, the last thing we'll cover on him is chapter seven, verses fifty-four through sixty, which is his martyrdom or his murder. Christ. That's what, I was really scheduled for Mother's Day, and I said, that's probably not a good idea. You know? Though we would all admit our, our wives and mothers are often martyrs. Um, so maybe that would be a good message. I wonder if I could twist and turn that into some type of Mother's Day message. I'm sure I could go online and, and download something from sermons.com or something that relates to Stephen's martyrdom and how it reflects motherhood. I don't know. We'll save that for another, another day. Now, so far in our book, as we've been studying the book of Acts, we've seen that things have been going fairly well for the church. Now, we've seen this explosive growth. We see thousands of people added to the church. But they've had some opposition. We've seen that um, from the religious leaders primarily. Things are going to change today with this story of uh, Stephen. Opposition from religious leaders has been growing. It began with some warnings, and then we saw it sort of proceed to some beatings with some warnings. And now we're going to actually see it proceed right on to martyrdom and to death. And so the opposition from the religious leaders has grown um, significantly. And we're going to see it change here. And one of the ways that it changes is up until this point, the church has been looked upon by the general population with fairly favorable eyes says that they had found favor in the eyes of the people. It was the religious leaders that had a problem with the church. We're going to see that change as well. So not only does the opposition from the leaders um, change, become much more serious, but now we're going to start to see how the population is impacted as they're riled up against the church as well. And so that's going to change the intensity of the persecution is going to change as well. So we're going to see this transition. Um, it appears that Luke is using this story of Stephen for a couple of different purposes, one of which is to, is to show the transition from Jerusalem out to now Judea and Samaria, as we kind of mentioned during our introduction. Jesus said that his disciples would be his witnesses first in Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria, and then on to the ends of the earth. And Luke follows that pattern in the book. The first third or so is the the work of the Holy Spirit within Jerusalem and building the church among the Jews. And then from there they go out to Judea and Samaria. And then from there we see it go off into the Gentiles and we see the last half or third of the book is dealing primarily with the Apostle Paul. And so Luke uses Stephen's death here as a way to show us the church is transitioning from Jerusalem and the Jews now out beyond Jerusalem. And so it becomes this transition, uh, transitional passage, if you will, where he moves from the Jews in Jerusalem to now those outside. And it's because it serves as a catalyst. And so Stephen's death here will actually serve as a catalyst in two ways. One of them is it will serve as a catalyst for increased persecution against the church. Because you'll see as we go through this passage today, that's what happened after Stephen's death persecution just exploded. It actually comes at the very end of our passage, first part of next week. I don't know that we'll cover that exactly today, but but that's what will happen. And the other thing it does, the other catalyst is that it actually pushes the church out beyond Jerusalem to cause it to grow. And so Stephen's death serves as a catalyst for increased persecution, but increased growth in the church as well. It's kind of like that idea of being put into the pressure cooker. And it actually, rather than stomp the church out, causes the church to grow and do exactly what Christ said it should do, which is to go from Jerusalem to today and Samaria and out to the ends of the earth. As we look at this, again, we're going to break it down into three pieces. It's chapter 6 and chapter 7 is the bulk of Stephen's story. Today we're going to look at um, four different things with Stephen. I'm going to use some alliteration again today. We're going to look at his character what kind of person he was. We're going to look at the charges against him. We're going to look at his courage. And then lastly, we're going to look at his countenance during his trial. And I think we're going to see some things in there that should encourage us. Dustin and I were talking last week as we were doing some study together. He said, you know, have you found yourself being sort of encouraged as we've studied through the book of Acts? I think today's passage um, should be an encouragement to us. Because we get to reflect on somebody that we can look at and go, man, what? What an individual. But it should also encourage us, because as we've talked about, many of us believe that we're going to see an increase in persecution and opposition and difficulty here. And as we look at Stephen and see how Stephen behaved and who he was, we should be able to walk out of here going, I want to be like Stephen. I want to be that kind of believer. And so, we'll see that over three weeks, and so you'll have to, you know, much of our greatest encouragement will come at his martyrdom but we're going to see some things here today so let's look at his character if we look at chapter 6 starting in verse 8 let me read that for you chapter 6 verse 8 and Stephen full of grace and power was performing great wonders and signs among the people what a great way to start out now remember Stephen was one of these seven outstanding men that had been chosen in the passage before some of the Hellenistic Greeks were struggling with their Jews, or I'm sorry, with their widows not being fed, and so they do a lot of complaining and, and whatnot against the Hebrew-speaking Jews. And so, they, they, basically, the apostles get wind of it, and the apostles come up with a plan: select seven men from among you, and we'll have we'll assign or appoint them to take care of this. And Stephen happens to be the first one that was mentioned by Luke. And I think there's a good reason why he was the first one to be mentioned. In fact, the first two people mentioned are Stephen and Philip. And we get some exposes now on Stephen and Philip. But we see he's going to use this phrase of being filled as we look at this. And there's going to be four things that he tells us Stephen was filled with. Now, when we speak of somebody being filled with something, we understand that it means that they are consumed by it. To the extent that it controls and directs their thoughts, their words, their actions, for instance, if I said to you, this person is filled with rage, what comes to mind? That they're just, they're out of control with anger, right? If I say, they're filled with love and compassion, what does that communicate? That they're compassionate, that they're driven by compassion and, and care and empathy. And so, when we look at Stephen here, we're told, Verse 8, he was full of grace and power. We're also told that he was full of some other things. And so let's walk through the four different things that he was full of here. In fact, I'm going to play on words here, and I'm going to say that Stephen was a man who was full of it. There's four things that he was full of. The first one we actually find back up in verse 5, if you look at that with me. The statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith. So see, the first thing that Stephen was full of, Was faith. Now, faith here is not referring to, um, I'll say, saving faith. Jesus addressed this idea of trust or confidence numerous times in the Gospels. And that's what he's referring to here. When it says that Stephen was a man who was full of faith, it didn't mean that he was saved. We know that he was. It meant that he was full of confidence. When it came to trusting the Lord. That's the kind of person he was. In fact, the gift of faith in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 refers just to that. Have you ever met people like that? They just, they've got a tremendous ability to trust. No matter what the circumstance, no matter what the position they find themselves in, they, they, they're just not shaken. Their faith, their trust, their confidence in the Lord is just beyond our own abilities or imagination sometimes. You know, we see, I think about, you know, Amy's friend Aaron. You know, many of you have never met her, but may feel like you know her. Um, Struggles seriously with, with Lyme disease and just everything that goes along with that. And yet, you can see her faith and her trust and her confidence in the Lord almost go unshaken. I look at that and I think, wow, you know, I've got my own issues, but nothing like that. How does she trust? How does she continue to do that? That's much like what we find here with Stephen was that he was a man whose confidence, his trust was something that you could see. Now, I think most of us would probably admit that we struggle at times, um, with varying levels of trust and confidence, don't we? We have circumstances change. We get tried. We waver a little bit. Get a little fearful. Didn't appear to be the case with Stephen. And we're going to see that in this story especially as he gets to his martyrdom we never see him lack confidence or trust through this whole entire ordeal second thing we're told he was full of also from verse five is it says that he was full of the holy spirit now dustin touched on this a little bit last week when the scriptures speak of being filled with the spirit there's two different forms of that if you will one of them is a supernatural, um, instantaneous, if you will, one-time um, filling of the Spirit to enable you for some special miraculous act or whatever you might want to call it. For instance, we have an instance where Peter where said that Peter was filled with the Spirit and began to preach. That's where you get this supernatural enablement at a specific point for a specific purpose. When the apostles spoke in tongues at um, Pentecost, that was a filling of the Spirit. So that's one way that it's used. So when you see that, sometimes you have to ask that question, is this one of those times? The other way that it's used, to say somebody is filled with or full of the Spirit, really has to do with this idea that their life is so permeated that you can see the Holy Spirit in their lives. And one of the best ways for us to do that is through things like the gifts of the Spirit. Love, peace, patience, kindness. You look at somebody, you can say, man, that is somebody who just exudes The Holy Spirit. You can see the Holy Spirit. You can see the character of God in them. That's why we're told in Ephesians, be filled with the Spirit. Paul wasn't saying that we're supposed to all of a sudden just wait and say, you know, have the Spirit come upon us and we start speaking in tongues and other things. It means that we're supposed to live in a way that demonstrates the filling that we're full of the Holy Spirit. John MacArthur probably has one of the best descriptions, I believe, of this. He uses three words to describe what it means, in that sense, to be filled or full of the Holy Spirit. The first word he uses is the word pressure. Because the nuance, the the Greek word for filling here, has different nuances to it. And the first nuance is this idea of pressure. And the way that John MacArthur describes this, is he says it's much like a sail of a ship that billows out as the wind hits it. There's that sort of soft but effective power that presses against that sail to now move that ship. And so the first word he uses is this idea of sort of that that pressure or that having your sails filled. You could liken that then as a Christian to sort of having the Holy Spirit kind of blow upon your sail and you go where the wind sort of takes you. He's the one there nudging you, moving you. The Holy Spirit is, is sort of guiding and directing and he's the power in your sails, if we can say it that way. In fact, I think we might even have a praise and worship song that refers to that. The second word he uses is the word permeation. And the example he gives of this is Alka-Seltzer. Remember, many of you probably didn't grow up with the Alka-Seltzer. I won't sing it for you. Plop, plop, fizz, fizz. Um, The idea is that you have a glass of water, and you drop this tablet, it's all sorts of fizz. And as it fizzes and dissolves, you no longer see the Alka-Seltzer tablets because they've dissolved and they've now permeated that water. And so the second word he uses there for the idea of being filled with the Spirit is that, that of permeation, that the Holy Spirit just fills you to where it's almost now indistinguishable. It's not like, well, there's Dave and there's the Holy Spirit somewhere on the left half of him. No, it's that when you see Dave, you see the Spirit. He's permeated by it. The last word he uses is the word domination. And this one is a much more, I won't say challenging one, but it's the idea of total control. That's probably the most difficult when it comes to being filled with the Spirit. is allowing the Holy Spirit to be the one that totally dominates or controls us. Because there's that flesh within us that we fight. In fact, Paul even struggles with that himself. He struggles with that. In Romans he says, I do the things I don't want to do. I don't do the things I don't want to do. Or no, I don't do the things I want to do and I do the things I don't want to do. It's that battle between the flesh and the Spirit. What did Jesus say? About the flesh and the Spirit? Spirit is willing, but... The flesh is weak. Sometimes the opposite can be true, meaning that the flesh is really powerful and it gets control and suppresses the work of the Holy Spirit. And so, again, the last word MacArthur uses is the word domination. So you have this idea of this, the the Holy Spirit sort of pushing on us and moving us, filling us and permeating us, and then controlling us, guiding us and directing us so that What we see is the Holy Spirit. And we can look at somebody and say, that person is led by the Spirit. And that's the way that it's described here for Stephen. He was that kind of person. As you looked at him, you could see that he was under the pressure of the Holy Spirit. You could see it apply it to him. You could see him permeated by it. You could see that he was totally dominated by it. In fact, I'm going to state this fairly boldly that when he get when we get to his martyrdom I don't believe there's any way that Stephen could do what he did at his martyrdom without being totally controlled by the Holy Spirit and so the first two things we see was that he was full he was full of grace he was full of the Holy Spirit I'm sorry full of grace is the third one here Look at 8a, full of grace. What does that mean to be full of grace? We often define the biblical concept of grace as unmerited favor, but really the root of that word grace is kindness. Paul actually does that, he kind of defines it or works that out in Titus chapter 3 where he talks about God's grace as being specifically related to kindness. When Luke describes Stephen here as being full of grace, I believe what he's saying is he was a kind man. The grace that had been extended to him, he extended to other people. And again, we're going to see that in his martyrdom. The way that he speaks to his offenders, the way that he talks at his martyrdom, is kind. You know, I've shared this before. As we've gone through this whole pandemic thing, It's amazing the amount of vitriol we've seen rise within even believers among other believers because we disagree on wearing masks or not wearing masks or we disagree on vaccines or not vaccines or vaccines or we disagree on lockdowns or the no lockdowns or we disagree on the politics, whether we're a Trump supporter or a Biden supporter. And so what's happened within the Christian church is as we've flooded social media with our opinions and our thoughts, oftentimes it's been done with a tremendous amount of vitriol hatred shouldn't be that way it should always be kindness and I'll admit that's a challenge Um, I do some posting on social media occasionally and I try to um, measure what I say by being a little bit on the I'll call it comical snarky side where I, I try to say it in a way that hopefully people will see that I'm being a little playful. I disagree with this or that, but I I don't want it to... I mean, there's a lot that I could say when I point fingers at others that I disagree with. There's all kinds of words I could use. And I try to avoid some of those words because it's not kind. But yet, I want to be able to communicate a disagreement, so I try to make it a little more humorous, to soften it. Stephen was a man, we're told, who was full of kindness or full of grace. What's the last thing we're told about him? The last is also found in verse 8. Stephen was full of grace and power. Another way to read that is full of grace and full of power. Now, it's actually tied to the second half of that. He was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Now, Stephen wasn't doing this on his own ability or power. We know that. They were demonstrations of the Holy Spirit's power, just like Jesus had said. Go back to Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Acts chapter 8, verse one or 7 and 8. It's not for you to know the epics which the Father has fixed in his own authority, but you will receive power when, what? The Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Where does that power come from? comes from the Holy Spirit. And so we have these four things we're told about Stephen. What's our takeaway with this? It's obvious from Luke's description here that Stephen was a remarkable man. He was a good example. He's a good example for us. There's a reason why he was chosen by his peers to help take care of the widows. They looked at him and saw him as a reputable man. And these four things applied, he was literally full of it. He was full of faith, he was full of the Holy Spirit, he was full of grace, and he was full of the power of the Holy Spirit. Wouldn't it be great if those things exemplified every believer? Would you like to be known as a person who was full of grace, full of the Spirit, full of faith, full of power? we see a beautiful picture of these traits in the rest of his story and they'll kind of come to light as we go through that through his arrest through his testimony and then even as he takes his last breath we will see these four things played out with him let's go on into the next section here the charges against him there's something awfully reminiscent about what happens to Stephen here we don't know if this is deliberately done by Luke or not but it's amazing the parallels between Stephen's arrest, trial, and martyrdom as somebody else. You all know who that is, right? Um, one of the commentaries, um, usually when I study through a section like this, I find what's called a technical commentary, and I'll buy one or two of them to help with looking at some of the words and some of the structure and, and the background information. And one of, the, one of the authors that I've been relying on to some degree is a guy named Ben, ben Witherington. And he actually identifies ten specific ways in which Stephen's arrest, testimony, trial, and death follow that of Christ. I think some of them are a little bit of a stretch, but we're going to go through some of those things today. Um, And I think it may be Luke's way of highlighting those things to show us how much Stephen was like Christ, which is what we're supposed to be like. So we're going to see that as we kind of walk through this. But Luke tells us that a group of men from something called the Synagogue of the Freedmen rise up and start to argue with Stephen. Look at verse nine. But some men from what was called the Synagogue of the Freedmen, including both Syrians and Alexandrians and some from Sicilia or from Cilicia and from Asia, rose up against, or rose up and argued with Stephen. Now, we don't really know a whole lot about the synagogue of the freedmen. It was basically a bunch of men who had been freed. They had been slaves. They were probably Hellenistic Jews. But they had been slaves at one point. They were freed. They kind of came together, and they made up some synagogues. This was likely not just a single synagogue. The name synagogue of the freedmen was a label given to them. But there were something like 490 or 500 synagogues all throughout Jerusalem. And a group of them were known as the synagogue of the freedmen. We don't really know much about them, except that they were probably Greek-speaking Jews, um, Hellenistic Jews, if you will. Um, They were from all different regions. We see here Cyrene, Alexandria, Cilicia, and Asia. That was their background. They were now living in Jerusalem. And so they came together, and they rose up, and they began to argue with Stephen. Uh, This rose up and argued is a good phrase, because this was a fairly robust disagreement the way that the language is structured here. They specifically sought out Stephen because they didn't like what Stephen was teaching and saying. And we're not told here, but we'll get an idea when when he gets into his, we'll call it his defense, we get a better idea of maybe what he had been preaching. But the one thing we are told throughout the book of Acts is that they were preaching the resurrection of Christ. So that had to have been part of Stephen's message here. We don't know if they had a specific problem with that. All we know is they had a problem with what Stephen was teaching. They were not happy about it. Now there's a problem. They rise up and they argue against him, but we're told in verse 10 there happened to be a problem and this was not something that sat well with them. But they were unable, it says, to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So these guys are there. They're arguing with him. And it doesn't matter what they said, they just couldn't deal with the wisdom coming out of his mouth. It's interesting. Remember, we were told that he was full of spirit and wisdom back up in verse 3. That was one of the things that defined the men who were selected. And so that had to have applied to Stephen. He was apparently a very wise man because of his filling with the spirit. And it says that they were unable to cope with that wisdom because it was spiritual wisdom. We're told that elsewhere by Paul. Defeating worldly wisdom with spiritual wisdom. Do you remember what Jesus promised his disciples in Luke chapter 12? Turn there with me. Luke chapter 12. I believe this is what we see going on here. Luke chapter 12. Chapter 4. I'm sorry, chapter 12, verse 4. Oops. I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that... Have no more than, I'm sorry, um, don't be afraid from those who kill a body and after that have no more that they can do. But I will warn you um, whom to fear. Fear the one whom after he has killed killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you to fear him. In other words, fear God. Don't fear these people are trying to kill you. Are you not, are not five sparrows sold for two cents, yet not one of them is forgotten before God? Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. And I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man will confess him before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him. Now listen to this. When they bring you before the synagogues, well, that sounds like Stephen here, and the rulers, which we'll see in just a minute, and the authorities, which we'll see in a minute, do not worry about how or what you are to speak in your defense or what you are to say. Why is that? Verse 12. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. You think this applies to Peter or to Stephen here? Here he is. Just doing his teaching in the synagogues. People are listening. These men come in, arguing with him, debating with him. And he begins to speak with the wisdom given to him by the Holy Spirit at that point, at that moment. And there's nothing that they can do or say to refute it. Turn to Luke chapter 21. There's another key here Luke chapter 21. Verse 15, I'm sorry, um, you can read, I'll, I'll be read verses 10 through 19 on your own, but it's a very similar passage dealing with the end times, and Jesus, again, promising the same thing, the Holy Spirit giving the wisdom that's necessary at that point. But look at what he says in verse 15 of chapter 21. He says, For I will give you utterance and wisdom, look at this, which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. What's happening with Stephen? They couldn't deal with the wisdom. Exactly as Jesus Christ had promised. The Holy Spirit will give you the words you need and they will not be able to refute that wisdom. And so we see that happening with Stephen here. So, they're unable to refute him. So what do you suppose they'll do now? They can't deal with the wisdom, the knowledge, the logic that Stephen is using so they do exactly what they did to Jesus Christ they change their tactics and what are their tactics false accusations and false witnesses sound familiar what do we see today with people attacking conservatives what do they say about us Christians we're all bigots we're all A, B they just rattle off the list of stuff that is completely untrue they're just disparaging comments because they can't deal with the truth common tactic I actually cut off one of my cousins because I finally got sick and tired of the way that he debated so if you want to stick to the facts I'm fine to talk with you but at this point we're done because you refuse to play by the rules it's always an attack on the character it's what it always was finally said I'm done look at verses 11 through 14 Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes. And they came up to him and they dragged him away and brought him before the council. They put forward false witnesses who said, This man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that the Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses has handed down to us. So we have here right out of the gate, Luke spells it out for us. They ultimately accuse Stephen of four things. The first two are blasphemy against Moses and God. The second thing, second things, I guess you'd say, that they accuse him of, three and four, speaking against the temple and the law. These are probably some of the most egregious sins in Jerusalem. One of the most egregious things that a a Jew could do is blaspheme Moses and God. That's to speak against, to say things that are untrue. Then, it was almost just as bad to speak against the temple and the law of God. And so they, they falsely accuse him right out of the gate. It says that they did this by secretly inducing men to make false charges and to serve as false witnesses. This word is generally used to refer to paying a bribe. In other words, they bought off these people. They paid them to lie about Stephen and make false accusations against him. Remember who else they did that to? False accusations against Christ. We're told that they stirred up the people, it says. They stirred up the people. This is where we see the tide begin to change. Now the elders, the the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees are now stirring up the people. Sound familiar? What do they do with Jesus? They get the people all worked up. They'll do the dirty work. So now they're stirring up the people. Again, we don't know what Stephen specifically said to them that got them so riled up, but we certainly know that he wasn't blaspheming God or Moses or speaking against the temple or speaking against the law of Moses. It wouldn't fit his character. It wouldn't fit what we know of him. Jesus himself said that he came to fulfill the law, not speak against it. So it wouldn't fit. So we know he wasn't doing that, but they knew that that would get the goat of the crowds and the other leaders. So they made up these false charges. So what's the takeaway with this? You know, Jesus warned us that they would hate us because they first hated him. No surprise that they hated Stephen, especially knowing the character of Stephen. The more righteous, the more they're going to hate. The world loves compromising Christians. They hate those that stand up for principles and values that reflect those of Christ. And so it's no surprise should we be surprised if they hate us? If they lie about us? If they make false claims about us? No. It's all promised. But Jesus also promised that the Holy Spirit would give us the wisdom and the words to respond, just like it did Stephen. Our real defense is simply speaking the truth, and we're going to see that with Stephen later. Far too often... As Christians, we try to fight the battle with human wisdom and tactics. But as we saw with Stephen, our primary weapon is the wisdom given by the Holy Spirit. That's what we find here. You know, I've shared examples here in the last few weeks of different institutions and individuals who are trying to soften the persecution, soften the vitriol against them by sort of caving to Christian principles. You know, what's interesting is I saw this article yesterday about a Christian school out in Washington State, 130-year-old, I don't remember even the name of it off the top of my head, 130-year-old, it was a free Methodist church, um, just recently the fa- or the uh, board of, um, their board basically, announced that they were sort of reaffirming their commitment to biblical principles regarding sexuality and marriage. And That in doing so, they were going to uphold their employee handbook, which basically said that employees at the school couldn't be engaged in sexual immorality and other forms. Well, 72% of their faculty voted a vote of no confidence against their board of directors. What does that tell you about these 72% of this faculty? Saying, we don't trust you because what you're claiming, you're going to hold to biblical principles? (laughs) At a Christian university? How dare you? But they basically said that they were the the board said, don't care. This is what we've affirmed. Hopefully they'll stay true to it. But Jesus warned us that they would hate us for things like that. This board is now hated by their own faculty, or 72% of them, because they're going to stand for biblical principles. And I would imagine that as they make their voices known now, they're probably going to say some things that are untrue. Some false things about those board members. Why? Because that's the tactics that the world likes to use. Let's move on. Let's look at Stephen's courage. Verse 13. They put forward false witnesses who said, This man is incessantly speaking against this holy place and the law. You may have missed that really important phrase there, as we read through the verses just a few minutes ago. The New American Standard translates it as incessantly speaks. Did you catch that? Other translations render it as this man never stops speaking. He just won't shut up. They obviously twist his words. They claim that he said things he didn't. Preaching against Moses and God and the law and the temple, but we know better. Um, one of the things that irritated these men about Stephen is that he just would not shut up about Jesus. He didn't shut up when he was out preaching and performing signs and wonders. He didn't shut up when they confronted and disputed with him here. He didn't shut up when they arrested him, and we're going to see that as well, because the longest sermon, if you will, in the book of Acts, I believe, is Stephen's. He doesn't shut up. In fact, he's got some very striking things to say, specifically about his accusers. There's no fear there. It's only courage. He didn't shut up when they dragged him before the Sanhedrin. In fact, he kept right on speaking about Jesus. And get this, even as they were stoning him, he was preaching Christ. While the stones are raining down upon him, he refused to stop talking. And that irritated these people. What's our takeaway? Jesus told his disciples, Behold, an hour is coming, and has already come, for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone, yet I am not alone, because my Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but what? Take courage, because I have overcome the world. We are told to be a courageous people. We're not supposed to shut up. And yet, again, I've given some examples of people who have decided to shut up about certain things because it's bringing too much heat. I don't want to be called anti-LGBT. I don't want to be called a bigot. I don't want to be called unloving or ungracious. So we shut up instead of just speaking the truth. Stephen wasn't like that. He Incessantly spoke. I think we need to irritate the world, folks. They need to hear us speak. We should do it in grace, kindness, understanding. One of my favorite phrases, it's probably not a very kind phrase, is, I tell people this all the time, you can expect the world to act and believe the way they do because they're idiots. It's true! They don't know any better! Jesus said, forgive them. Why? They don't know what they're doing. We're going to see Stephen say the same thing about his accusers. They don't get it. And it caused him to have compassion, but he still spoke the truth in courage. So instead of shying away and saying, well, you're right, guys. I'm sorry I offended you. Just leave me alone. Put your stones down. I'll walk away quietly. Didn't. Took courage. We should do, especially now. The last thing I want us to see is in verse 15, and it's the countenance of Stephen. Look at verse 15. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. Some suggest this might have been something similar to Moses' Um with his face shining after he spoke with God in the mountains. Um, it's possible. You know, Moses had to come down and cover his face because it was glowing. It's possible. It would be a weird way for Luke to say it. Why didn't he just say that his face was glowing or it looked like Moses? He said he says a face like a face of an angel. What's a face of an angel look like? Well, we're not sure. Another suggestion is that it was Luke's way of describing Stephen's innocence. We talk about that innocence of an angel. Um... My wife calls me her angel all the time cuz, you know, look at me. <clears throat> what? I heard something over there. <sighs> I'm innocent, right? And so it's possible that maybe that was what Luke was doing. However, I've got another thought. A third option, and this is probably the one I lean towards here is to understand it as a reference to Stephen's countenance. And the reason I say that is this. Countenance refers to one's face or facial expression. You can see what's going on in a person by looking at their face. And so when somebody is fearful, you can see it in their face. When somebody is at peace, you can see it in their face. It's amazing how the face reveals someone's emotional state. For instance, when... God was addressing Cain in Genesis chapter 4 after he was all frustrated because the Lord had accepted his brother's sacrifice but not his. The Lord could see it in his face. He talks to Cain about his countenance. I think what we have here, Luke, I think, is describing when the council looks at him and they fix their gaze on him, what they saw in his face was somebody who was calm, he was controlled. He was unfazed. This is exactly what we see in angels when we see them described in the scriptures. Always in control. Doing the work of Christ. That's my take on this. That what he's really doing is he's reflecting that Stephen was sitting there with a countenance of a heavenly being. And you could see it in his face. He didn't show anger. He didn't show hatred towards his accusers. He was at peace. His countenance was what it should be. It's amazing how quickly our countenance can change. And we've seen this again with so much of what's been going on in our world around us today. We're supposed to have a certain countenance as Christians. And oftentimes we don't. Because we get agitated, frustrated, upset, angry, and you can see it. See it when we scowl at others, see it in their face, and we would expect that of Stephen. If it were me sitting there, I don't think I think I'd be giving him that eye, you know, that stink eye thing. Look at you people. But apparently Stephen didn't. His face looked like an angel. His countenance—he was at peace. He was controlled. Sitting there in courage. What's the takeaway for us in this? And we'll kind of wrap it up as we just touch on this. But it's easy for us to lose heart when we see what's going on around us in our culture, our nation, even the church. And folks, you know, we've talked about this. We don't don't face what our brothers and sisters in Christ face all over the world. We really don't. Um, We oftentimes forget what they suffer like. That doesn't doesn't mean that we don't face our own forms of opposition and persecution, you know. Um, We kind of have a tendency to lose heart fairly easily, especially American Christians, I think. You know, because we oftentimes will take our Christian faith and we so fuse it towards our constitutional rights that they become one and the same. And so, when our constitutional rights are taken away, we automatically assume it's an attack against God and Christianity, and there may be an element of that. But we get frustrated and angry and upset and it just makes us worry and fear and and our countenance sort of changes. And yet, we shouldn't lose heart. We know the end of the story, folks. Now we we know it may get brutal, but we know the end of the story. What did Jesus tell his disciples a little bit ago when he read? Don't fear, I have overcome the world. That was his encouragement to them. Don't lose heart. I've overcome it. The deed is done. It's finished. Why are you losing heart? We shouldn't be. Look at 2 Corinthians, and we'll close on this. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It's kind of a long passage. I'm going to read it anyway. Second Corinthians chapter 4. This is Paul speaking. Therefore, since we have this ministry as we receive mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adult adulterating the word of God. But by the manifestations of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God, what he's saying there is I haven't backed down. I haven't changed the word of God. I'm just out there preaching the word of God as it is and I'm not going to lose heart. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is in the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as the bond servants, for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, "Light shall shine out of darkness," is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the surpass, surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are not afflicted, in it, or we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not despairing. We're persecuted, but we're not forsaken. We're stricken down, but we're not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Christ also may be manifest in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our mortal flesh, so death works in us, but life in you. But having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believe, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sake, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. But, our outer, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed by day. For momentarily, light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which we are, that are seen, but at the things that are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. That's the Apostle Paul. This is the guy that provides for us a list of the things that he suffered, including shipwrecks and beatings and pretty much beaten to death almost, time in prison, ultimately will be martyred for his faith, but he says, do not lose heart. I think Stephen presents us with a pretty amazing picture, folks. Not just in his character. We see the kind of character he was? Should we want to be like him? Full of it. We've seen the false accusations that he faced. And we should expect the same things ourselves. But then we saw in the face of those things his courage. Just not being willing to shut up. And then lastly, we see his countenance. Not losing heart in the face of all that. And we're going to see that over the next two weeks, or three weeks, because of Mother's Day fitting in there. But we'll see how he will stand up and preach a pretty amazing sermon but with the goal of trying to win the hearts of those he's preaching to. But then we'll also see him face his death in a way that he prays for his accusers and he looks up to heaven to see Christ standing there